If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Sebastian Simiakowski, co-founder and CEO of Klarna, the company making it easy to pay how you like. Sebastian started Klarna in 2005 in order to provide safe and smooth online payments. Since then, Klarna has been on a mission to revolutionize the retail banking industry, meeting the changing demands of consumers by saving them time and money while helping them be informed and in control of their personal finances. Sebastian has overseen the company's rapid global growth with Klarna now operating across 45 markets. Klarna is a fully licensed bank with over 150 million active consumers and 450,000 merchant partners. Over 2 million transactions are made daily on Klarna. Sebastian holds a master's degree from the Stockholm School of Economics. And with that, let's welcome Sebastian. Hi, Sebastian. Excited to have you. Give us a sense of what's Klarna in your own words. And I want to go back to 2005. And what was that aha moment that helped you come up with this big idea? We are, you know, an accelerator of trade, both online and offline. We are trying to offer better financial services for consumers that help them save time and money and make them less worried about their finances. And by doing so, we also find out that we can help accelerate the trade of our partners and merchants. So I think that's probably the best summary you'll be able to get out of me. But I think there's like, it's a difficult question to answer. Can we just, you know, for anybody out there listening, walk us through what the user experience today is with Klarna. You know, give us a sense of the options and then what happens after I purchase something. Many times the way it starts is you will go to a merchant, you will see already on product page, multiple places, because obviously uh, merchants have discovered that just putting a payment method in the checkout will have some impact on their sales. But if they promote it further upstream, it has a more likely outcome to actually influence customer behavior. So they will promote it. You will see maybe paying for interest-free installments, so you will see some other kind of offer uh, going on. You will come to the checkout, you will have Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and then Klarna. If you select Klarna, we have made sure that like the first time experience from a friction perspective should be almost as low as using your existing card. So there should like really not be like a tremendous sign up process or too difficult uh, experience there, but really like a one click experience already on your first time you use it. Once you've done that, you basically get an email from us similar to PayPal saying, hey, You've done a purchase with us at this merchant, download our app to see your purchase history. And it's actually there that a lot of the really interesting, in my opinion, differentiation starts because Klarna is the only payments network of our size that processes SKU level data on every transaction. So when you start opening your purchase history, not only do you see that you made a purchase for $100 at Macy's or H&M, you actually see images of the items that you bought, um, which is a very differentiated experience to Amex, Visa, MasterCard and so forth. And then that starts making consumers like, wow, I like this. I can see the shipping, see when the package arrive. I can see exactly, I can contact the customer service of the merchant directly through the app with all the details of my 
order, so I don't need to manage that separately in an email. So we start becoming this kind of e-commerce dashboard of yours where you can see all of your purchases. And then we further enhance that experience by saying, you know what, if you have a merchant where Klon is not available today and you still want to use us, you actually can use our app as a browser similar to Safari and Chrome. And then you can go to that website, say Amazon, for example, and you can use Klon on Amazon because what we do there is we basically create this, which feels a little bit like Google Autofill or these Safari Chrome Autofill experiences where we will pre-fill all the checkout aspects for you. We will create a one-time Visa credit card, put it into the checkout of Amazon, make a purchase on your behalf so you can still pay any way you like. To Amazon, it looks like a standard credit card transaction. To the consumer, it looks like I'm shopping with Klarna. I get all the benefits of the different payment methods. I get the benefits of the SKU level data and the digital dashboard of all my purchases. And then we've added additional elements there. Like we will also help you, for example, you can put specific items that you want to purchase on wish lists. We will monitor price development for these items. So this kind of experience has started to become almost like a digital assistant that is trying to help you in your everyday shopping habits and shopping experiences to help you save time and money. And we will, for example, if we know that there's a discount available, we'll promote it to you. And so it's all about those things. What unlock did you provide for the merchant? Maybe one that you thought was obvious and then maybe anything that, you, that was non-obvious that ended up happening over the last 17 years. If you look at the payment space, you almost have like these two extreme ends. At one end, you have PayPal and Amex, which in my opinion, I wouldn't refer to as payment schemes, but more extortion schemes, because basically they're charging merchants a high fee and then they're using some of that money to incentivize the consumer through bonus points and, and other things to use their form of payment over others. And that may be very beneficial for Amex or PayPal, but less beneficial for the merchants who end up paying a lot of cost and doesn't necessarily see the incrementality of those sales. Amex would claim differently, but still, like, you know, you get the point. So you've had that on one side. Now, on the other side, you've had the traditional private label credit cards, which were created with much more the merchants. In, in the US, we had traditionally Synchrony, Alliance Data, and a couple of other companies who were creating these kind of private label credit card solutions who were very much for the merchant. Part of it was like people that are paying cash in store. How do I make them to use a loyalty card so that I get identification so I know who my customers actually are so I can send them monthly offers and, and so forth through a monthly statement, but also make money out of credit because a lot of those would promote fairly unhealthy, high interest bearing credit accounts where you would revolve at 29% interest and so forth. So they weren't necessarily customer consumer friendly from, from that perspective, and they would push you into not that healthy credit, right? So you had these kind of epiphanies. So I think that like my conclusion over the years has been like, how do I try to create a new form of payment network, one that competes with the Amex, Visa, and MasterCards of the world, but it actually tries to balance those two, tries to make sure that we create incrementality and value for merchants, that the fee that they pay for processing with us is actually resulting in higher average order value, higher conversion rate, higher uh, new customer acquisition and so forth, that it leads to something of value. It's not just a cost uh, increase. And on the other hand, how do we make sure that we offer something that's attractive to consumers? Because what's been fueling this buy now, pay later uh, revolution to some degree, which I think sometimes media underestimates, is the fact that a lot of consumers burnt out in 2007. They saw their parents struggle with high credit card debt they figured out that the reason the credit card is screaming my credit limit is for me to overextend my credit. Every month I'm being offered to revolve, which is a confusing concept to pay less. 
at high interest rates, and they really appreciate the simplicity and transparency of the buy now, pay later model, which is like, I'm not borrowing against my groceries and all of my monthly spending. I'm selecting specific transactions that I say, I want to borrow against these purchases. I'm doing it for a specific time period, very fixed installments, and then I pay it off and I pay no interest. So consumers just see that this is a healthier form of credit. But on the merchant side, I think, you know, obviously everything we do is just related to how can we accelerate trade? How do we make sure that what we're doing is contributing to them selling more, being them seeing more repetitive usage, them seeing more customers coming back and, and doing that at a cost that is a positive ROI for them, right? Um, so that they feel that this is aligned with their best interest. How do you think the future of credit is evolving? To me, and this was a little bit when we formulated our current strategic direction that we did in 2015, because we kind of pivoted a little bit company back then. But like when we set this, part of it was like asking ourselves, like, where is this all going? The retail banking, credit card industry, where is it all going to end up? Right. I, I had this vision of or we had this vision of you wake up one morning and your computer slash financial assistant, whatever, says to you, you know what? Uh, Alexa, I analyzed your mortgages tonight while you were sleeping. And I recognized that by switching from provider A to B, I'm going to save you 15 bucks a month. And the only thing you need to do is say yes, right? And at that point of time, are you really going to care whether it was Capital One borrowing you the money or this? Like, you're just going to be like, 15 bucks, I'm in, right? Like, so the point is, when I went to business school as a student, they taught me about perfect functioning markets had no profit. And I felt that it was all balloony because like that was not what I was seeing in the real world. But I genuinely believe that digitalization and internet is not necessarily creating perfect markets, but it's creating closer to perfect markets. So what this means is that the financial industry today, if you look at banks, what they talk about is maximizing interest rate spread, which basically is actually not aligned with customers' best interest. Because what it means, if you translate it, is charge consumers as high interest rate as possible on their lending and then give them as little as possible on the deposits. That's the interest rate spread maximization, which is counterintuitive to what consumers want, which is highest possible interest rate on your savings and as low cost on your loans as possible, right? So what this led me to believe, and then I saw like things, I mean, I know Dave has been, you know, struggling, had their own challenges, but there was something very interesting to the original concept of Dave in the US, which was the idea that like you connect all of your credit lines and then they automatically move your credit balance to the lowest interest bearing of your current providers. Like that original concept to me was like, wow, you know what? When technology catches up, when that becomes a reality, why would we ever pay extra for any credit beyond what, based on our credit profile and so forth, is economically reasonable for us to pay? So the over profit that you've seen in this industry, in my opinion, is going to go away. And I even tell my investors, look, this industry will shrink. It won't make the amount of money it has done historically, but hopefully Klarna being leaning into that rather than leaning back from that will be able to become a large player in a future smaller industry that's still going to be a trillion dollar industry, right? To me, the epiphany of that and the conclusion was, who do you want to be? Well, I don't necessarily want to be the balance sheet, but I definitely want to be the, the advisor, the one that woke you up in the morning and said, save 10 bucks or 15 bucks. Because if I do that, you may say, thank you for doing that. Here's a $5 tip, right? Like that's the position you want to be in genuinely on that side. So I think where credit is going is as much as 2007 was a failure of 
securitization, kind of all of that. And we went a little bit back towards banks and balance sheets. I actually think that is just temporary. I think the real failure in 2007 was credit bureaus being corrupted by the big investment banks, not pricing the assets accurately. In the future, whenever you borrow, you will have a transparent credit profile and you will be priced by the open market to the lowest rate that is applicable to you as a consumer based on your previous habits. I would love to get your opinion of if we really fast forward five years, 10 years, and if software and AI and everything can get much smarter, where do you think the wallet could go? If one believes that that's the case, then what is the conclusion of that? The conclusion is that the future of banking is not the balance sheet. It is technology and data. And so what that means then is you've got to be the best in the world. To some degree, the problem with current tech companies and banks is they're hoarding data, but they're not really good at taking that data and creating value for their consumers based on the data that they've hoarded. So the key, the winner is the one who becomes the best at understanding the data of their users and then providing value in the sense of saving time, money, or making you less worried about your finances, to your point, based on that data, right? And I think part of why that is not happening at a more accelerated pace is the switching cost that we currently still have within financial services. So the inability of me to switch between banks, et cetera, which partly open banking and so forth is here to solve for, but technically has not yet matured to the level where I, with a click of a button, say, hey, Capital One, I'm tired of you. I'm bringing everything, my transaction history, my reputation, my credit, you know, everything that you know about me, I'm now bringing to Chase. And then, and I'm showing that to Chase and Chase says, you know what, based on that, we can do this for you, right? Like in that world where that becomes that simple, it will be stopping about creating like these artificial monopolies and increased interest rates. And, and, and to some degree, banks are really fighting against that level of mobility because then competition will really be about creating the most value. And I think that's what we should be aspiring for. And then what I'm trying to make sure with Klarna is that I am one of the companies or we're one of the companies in the world that's the best at transforming that data into valuable things for the consumer. And I think the, the benefit we have, for example, one of the things that we identified in that direction was, okay, we're the only payments network in the world at scale that has SKU level data. So again, coming back to that, that I know not only that you bought for $100, but I know the exact items, the product, the sizes, the colors, et cetera. Everything else equal, if I use that in a mindful way to the benefit of my consumers with their consent, then in that case, if I develop and explore how that can be used, we can be a market leader in creating something of value to consumers ahead of others that then allows us, because I do believe in the end, I'm not, I don't think it's the winner's take it all market, but I think it will be four or five large players in that space who will dominate in the kind of retail banking slash bank. And I think there will be global because it is a scale game to a large degree and a data technology game. I think there will be global as opposed to more local players that we've seen historically, right? So uh, in banking. So yeah, I would very much agree with you on that kind of end game. You now are in 45 countries and growing. What's the playbook to rolling out to a new country and how have you done it so well? If you want to grow that global presence, working together with international brands that sell internationally. In addition to that, we try to actually build great experiences on a local basis. It is the most effective customer acquisition channel that we could have to grow in all these markets. So our partners are extremely important to us because they obviously bring new consumers into the franchise. 
And they do so at a very efficient cost compared to if I would, let's say like Revolut, try to acquire them myself. So Revolut does an amazing job. I'm a big fan. I think it's impressive what they're doing. But the point is still that it's a very different setup. So a lot of our international expansions is actually through the partnerships of our global brands. If we work with a Nike or an H&M or whatever, they help us grow on an international basis. And then at the same point of time, because I do believe that the end game here is the scale game that we just talked about, I do think that that global presence actually matters. It's important. To some degree, EU actually also, thanks to the European Union, thanks to the banking regulations that were passed in 2005, some aspects are actually easier than the fact that the US, every state has their own regulation. So you may even sometimes you know, believe that the differences are larger, but the US and the European economy are the same size if you look at them in totality. So being present in both of these are very, very critical to us. And that's why we're adding especially a lot of markets within the European Union. But in addition to that, we also see other markets that we think are very similar, like Australia, New Zealand, and some other markets where we see opportunity. But I think that the global aspect is very critical for our partnerships. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Okay, Sebastian, I'm, I'm going to transition to you. Was there one thing your parents did when you were younger that stands out as something that has helped you be this successful and sort of stay committed even in the hard times? My parents were economical refugees from Poland. And, you know, I, I was born in Sweden, but just a few months after they came here, they were intellectuals. They had academical backgrounds, but my father was driving a cab and was unemployed for some period of time and so forth. And I think it created a little bit, which I think is probably quite common to immigrant kids, a little bit this sense of like unfairness. Now, life isn't fair, but like point is it creates this like, why does the Swedish kids have this? And why does like, why does these families have this? My parents deserve something different. And it creates this sense of unfair. So like a little bit of like, you want to get back at the world. You want to show that like you deserve something different as well. I think that was part of the hunger. But I think another thing that they really... They always taught me, and I don't know how they did this actually, because I think it's a difficult thing to teach someone, but like they always taught me everyone's equal. And, and, I, and I see that still today, even, you know, obviously now clients become this big thing. But even before, if I, you know, many years ago had the chance to like meet the king of Sweden or whatever, it's cool. I'm not saying it's a celebrity, so it's cool, but it's a human being. And so I think there was something ingrained in me that like everyone's equal. And that also means that I have the same opportunities as everyone else. Nothing is kind of impossible. If somebody else has been able to do it, then I should be able to do it. Like there's never been that idea that like we're different or it's whatever. To me, like everyone's equal. Everyone has the same prerequisites. Now, that's obviously not entirely true. People do have different prerequisites and have been given different DNA and different, you know, prerequisites in life and all that. But, but still, I was very much ingrained in me that everyone's equal and everything that everyone else can do, you can do. So I think that definitely has helped me. What attracted you to entrepreneurship so early? Can you remember? 
No, that's the thing. I've actually, that's one of the questions that I've never been able to answer. I don't really fully understand why, because, you know, my dad really wanted me to be a doctor. He himself studied for a doctor, didn't finish. So he wanted to be a medical doctor. Like they did a little bit of that kind of stuff. When I was a kid, they created this book that they were selling together as a small company. My mom was running a small businesses and stuff, but obviously money was part of it. Um, in a very socialistic country that I was brought up in, which I admire and I think is amazing. But there was fun, like there was this TV show, children's TV show, where like, when I look at it today, I recognize the purpose of it. It was this girl and she had two boyfriends, like or she was like hanging out with two boys and she wasn't, she was supposed to choose her boyfriend. One of them being this naturalistic kid that was just nice and friendly. And the other one being this like kid from a very rich family with like, you know, a garage full of toys and stuff. And he was also obviously the bad boy that wasn't nice and stuff like that. And now as I look at it, I laugh about it because I realized in this socialistic upbringing, it was supposed to teach me to admire and want to be like that kid. But I just looked at the garage full of toys and I was like, I want a garage full of toys. <laughs> you know, like, so I think they failed at that like ambition to kind of provide me with that. So I think definitely, obviously, there was something also metri pure materialistic about the fact that like, I saw families around me with parents which seemed similar to my parents, but they just had a better life. They, had, they were traveling, they were doing things. And obviously there was also an urge for that. So I did to some degree associate entrepreneurship also with economical standards and abilities. But, but there was also a big fascination just for business. And I think money has been part of it, but I don't think it's the whole. If it would only been about money, I would have quit a long time ago. What keeps you going? Is there a hack? Is there something you do that in those really hard moments, you lean on it and it helps you say, all right, I, I can put in three more years. I can do five more years. And if so, what is it? Well, there's a couple of things. Well, one of the things that really has impacted me is that before I started this company, me and my co-founder, Nicholas, came up with this crazy idea when we were like backpacking a year, taking a gap year. And one of the ideas that we did was that we were going to travel around the world without flying. This was far ahead of the stigmatization of flying that exists today. So I feel we were a bit ahead of the game. This is like 2003. And one of my reflections is coming back. We, were very, we had little, very little budget. So we we're traveling very intensely, just moving from city to city. And we always, obviously, obviously wanted to check off like, oh, Paris, Eiffel Tower, next time, you know, whatever. And we were like going from place to place. Coming back after 143 days, digging up a bottle of champagne that we had buried in St. Moritz, where we started in, in the Ops, and celebrating I had this epiphany that for a large part of my life, as you were doing the same things every day, days kind of went into each other. But for the 143 days today still, because I was changing environment every day, I still can close my eyes and remember every day from that trip. I have some unique memory from almost every day. And so it made me really realize that as much as it sounds like this cliche that life is a journey and it's not about the end, it's about the journey itself and so forth. It's genuinely true for me. And the same applies for me in Klarna that like, yes, obviously I'm sweating, I'm crying, I'm stressed when our valuation drops and the market is screaming and media is writing all these things. It's freaking hard, but it's also the experiences that I will remember. It's the war stories I will tell when I'm sitting and talking to my grandchildren it's not going to be the fun days when I was, you know, just enjoying life and things were good. And, and, and also that stress and that those times when it's been very challenging, that's the time when I've learned the most, when I've developed the most as an individual, as a leader, where I've, you know, had the most interesting experiences. And as I joke about it, when you go on vacation, you don't remember the sunny days, you remember the thunderstorm and you were running and rushing in, you know, and like, whatever. 
I really find that as, as part of life. I, I, I'm not saying I celebrate those experiences always or, or that I'm welcoming them and please give me more stuff. But to some degree, I do. I do think that like it is friction is underestimated as, as, as an important part of life. You know, I was even laughing about it because I was at the zoo with my kids this weekend and they were starting to tell it like, yeah, well, one thing we realized with animals in captivity is that like we don't just give the lions meat anymore. We dig it down and we make them search for it and, you know, fight for it because it keeps them more happy and content. And I was like, oh, that's kind of it. It's the same for me. I need, I need, you know, I need that. Like, just don't serve it to me. Like, I'll be unhappy, right? Like, make me dig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make me dig, right? And so I think that like, and I'm not, I'm not judging. I know that every individual has different prerequisites in life, have different circumstances. You know, I do recognize some people need support and life is different and so forth. But for me, personally, I really don't necessarily see it as a negative. I see it as a fantastic learning experience and, and, and you, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So like, I think that's part of life and I don't think that that is a negative part of it. I want to move to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask three questions and I just want the first thing that comes to your mind. So in 17 years, can you remember the biggest pinch me moment, the moment where you came home and maybe said to your wife or to somebody else, I can't believe that we pulled that off. Something happened that made you so joyful, what was it? Well, I would say probably one of the biggest ones was uh, winning Macy's in the US. Um, I think that like, it was a, a very interesting struggle between us and Afterpay. It was basically a lost case. They kind of informed us that they would go. And then, you know, I was actually on Christmas day, I got an email from a very senior member at Macy's that told us that they were gonna go with Afterpay. And uh, this was at a very critical time when we were growing in the US and I was like, if Afterpay gets that, it's going to be very difficult. And then things turned around. A few weeks passed. We continue working hard on it. COVID happened. That also changed things. And then a few months later, they signed with us instead. And I knew that that, that was that, 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 that immense, like, that was such a critical account and such an important part. And it was just so much hard work behind making that happen. If there is a book that has impacted your life materially in any way, it can be any book, doesn't have to be a business book, what was it? If I would mention non-business book, I would take The Never-Ending Story uh, that I read as a child and now I'm reading it to my children. I'm just crying as a baby when I read it. It's an amazing, amazing story. It's just fascinating. And you can read it when you read it as an adult. You just see it in a very different light. And it also, obviously, because in my, for me, because of my very troublesome experience with my father and his abuse and of substances and drugs and stuff, there's a lot that hurts my soul when I read that story. But it's also, to some degree, warming to read it. So. I think that's it. But, but if I would say more business-like, I actually think I despise a little bit your typical management literature because I feel that like a lot of it is full with things like hire the best. And you're like, okay, thank you. That's great advice. But like, where do I find them? And how do I recruit them? And where do they come from? And what questions do I ask to identify them? And you know, whatever, like it's become so high level and superficial, right? What I really like is the five dysfunctions of a team because it is, very concrete. And it's just about like, okay, I have a management team and I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm recognizing half the team is zooming out and on their computers and not paying attention. Is it supposed to be like that? Is that a good functioning team? Are we being constructive? Are we making the most out of our time? And if not, what can we actually practically do about it to build a better functioning team that is actually comfortable challenging each other, having constructive feedback and so forth? And that book is just very, very 
concrete and what are the actions that you can take as a leader to try to create a better functioning team. So those, I really like his books because they're very, very concrete. Sebastian, last question is, if you're interviewing somebody, what is the a question you like to ask to like really see who they are and like really get to the core of who they are? I usually ask people like, how many people have you hired in your career? And people will say like, oh, 20, 30, whatever. And then I ask them, how many of them that you hired were great? And the interesting thing is that people here, I find it interesting that to some degree, people want to impress. So they will say 90%, 95%. But talent is rare and recruitment is really hard. And to some degree, if you say that, I'm almost like thinking, have you really put the bar high enough? Like, so I think it's almost a fun trick question in a way, because actually I prefer people saying 40, 50% and say like, you know, it's very hard to find great talent because it is hard to come about great talent. Um, they're rare about. So those kind of questions are fun because the right answer is not necessarily what people think is the right answer. You almost want them to say 10%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> then you have a very high bar. So that means something good, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, first of all, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us today. What an absolute pleasure. And I have to say, you've just made me realize how much of an even brighter future Klarna has uh, the next decade uh, with you at the helm. Um, and just everybody out there, if you haven't already checked out Klarna, please check out Klarna.com. It's quite literally everywhere. Um, and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobol. And Sebastian, we're rooting for you. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. 